morning. Great to see you this morning. I hope you're well and enjoying this summer and, uh, and you like the people you're sitting next to this morning. So uh, great to be here. Um, a lot of you in the past year, when you bump into me, asked me how retirement's going. So uh, I brought along my uh, May and June schedule and I just thought I'd throw it up there for you. There's two things I'd like you to notice. Number one, I have not fully embraced the digital age. <laughs> uh, number two, retirement is not going well. So uh, I'm going to try again in December, but in the meantime, you maybe could pray for me because uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not... This is the first time I've tried retirement, so I'm going to try again because uh, this first time around hasn't been that successful. So... This is the first in a series of uh, messages on the fruit of the Spirit called Grow. Today we're going to look at the building blocks of a life well lived and lay a foundation for the study we're going to do. And and actually I, I come to this, not only this scripture but all scripture at this season in my life a little different than I have been in the past years. Uh, a couple weeks ago my Aunt Gladys, who was my mom's closest friend, and a person who many of the best memories of our life are wrapped up with her and her husband uh, at 91, passed away. Then about a week after that, I found that the, the family that I grew up uh, about a mile and a half from, and who were very responsible for helping my parents stay on the farm in North Dakota as long as they did, uh, my dad died at 86, and he lived in one place for 85 years and eight months. And uh, they were such friends and such a help. We found out about a week ago that his cancer has now moved into his bones. And then, even though I didn't know him, I was really bothered by the death of Anthony Bourdain. I watched that uh, food show a lot on television, and uh, though clearly many of his values are quite different than mine, I found him an intriguing person, and I liked, I liked just following him around the world, and when at 61, I found that he had taken his own life, and then we find a, a, a week ago, there was no, there was no uh, drugs in his system, it was even sadder to me, and then a couple weeks ago, I turned 68. And you know, uh, 68's got a little punch to it. And as uh, an old gentleman once told me, I hear the bells tolling. And so when I come to the scripture, I'm looking at it for something that maybe 10 or 15 years ago I was not looking at or looking for. And so when we come to this section on the fruit of the Spirit, I'm looking at what are the building blocks to a life well lived? When you look back on your life, when somebody else looks back on your life, when those who love you look back on your life, do they say, this is a life well lived? And what does that life look like? So let's read Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Here Paul gives us a list of the fruit of the Spirit. He said, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now we'll find ourselves in various situations that may arouse different aspects of these fruit. Uh, For example, right now at our home are all of our grandkids. We have five grandkids from the age of one to five. So they create a cacophony of sound. They rev each other up until eventually we know at least two will be crying at any one time. So when I read here the fruit of the Spirit is peace, I think, I don't know, that's harder to come by these days. So uh, you may find different times in your life when different aspects of this fruit are harder to come by. But these aspects are part of building the building blocks of a life well lived. So we're going to look at three things that get us to this list. And then uh, next week I'll be with you again and we're going to start on the first one. And, uh, and uh, I think I'm with you the last week of July and, and the third week of August. Now I have a philosophy of preaching and that is in the summer, the deeper into the summer you go, the shorter the sermons should get. And so by July, it's going to be Jesus wept, go thou and do likewise, God bless you. And we're going to be down to five minutes. Now, I'm not speaking for Bob or uh, for Townley, <laughs> Chris, but, but uh, anyway, uh, lucky you, we're near the front of the summer, so all right. So like, why are we here? What is the church about anyway? What should it be about? There's four things as you follow the life of Jesus that the church ought to be about. These are actually for me. 45 years in the church, and I had to back up, and and frankly, I I didn't like the definitions I was getting about what the church is supposed to be. So I came up with my own list out of my own reflections on the life of Jesus. And I think there's at least four, four things the church is about. One, it's about the indiscriminate display of grace. The indiscriminate display of grace. Grace has two, has two meanings. One is God's power to help in time of need. And the second is the unmerited or unearned favor of God. And everywhere Jesus went, he was just scattering, some would say recklessly, his favor and his help. He would hug the lepers and heal them even if they weren't coming back to say thank you. He gave illustrations about good Samaritans even though Jews weren't even supposed to touch or speak to a Samaritan. He sat down with Matthew, a tax collector, and the Bible says the publicans and the sinners came and ate with him, and the Pharisees couldn't comprehend what in the world was he doing in the company of these people. He walked through a town and Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, but also a short man, had to climb up into a tree because nobody would even give him any space. And Jesus stopped and in the hearing of everyone said, you know, I'm I'm going to your house today, Zacchaeus. You come down. After Peter's catastrophic failure of not only objecting to the Lord's insight that he was going to deny him, but then denying him three times, and the Bible says going out and weeping bitterly. When Jesus met him again, Jesus didn't even bring it up. Didn't even bring it up. Sadly, 
many Christians in my experience and many churches do not believe in the indiscriminate, reckless display of grace, but find it far easier to be stingy with their favor, particular about the help they give. And yet Jesus just went about doing good everywhere he could. Now my dad wasn't even a Christian until far later in his life. But I never felt anything but favor from him. Both my brother and I knew that no matter what happened in our life, no matter how catastrophic it was, we could always go home. And at this stage in life, to be frank, I'm, I'm somewhat troubled by parents who find it difficult to extend favor to their children. I puzzle at the many times I sat in an office listening to somebody pour out the wreckage and the pain of their life, knowing that some of it can be, could be traced back to parents who were so stingy with their favor, and if they gave it, was always giving it on the basis of having it, it having been earned. And it was not that long ago I had a conversation with someone who said to me, Today their parent might have favor, but tomorrow was a new day and you had to earn it all over again. There's nothing about that in the life of Jesus and how he related to other people. The indiscriminate display of grace everywhere he went. That's the second purpose in the church and that is celebrating the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is a great word. The gospel means good news. There's nobody here who does not need good news. You have some area of your life where you hope there would be good news. And the Christian is about good news. From the very beginning of the birth of Christ, the angel says, behold, I bring you great tidings of good news. We are people of the good news. And so we talk about the invitation to the gospel of Jesus Christ, about living in the depths of the gospel, about redemption and reconciliation and grace. Christianity has all the good words. Those, those, these are the, this is the vocabulary we get to traffic in. Reconciliation and redemption. Is there any adult here who doesn't wish somehow God could redeem something that happened in their life? And so the, the church is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the church is about building community. First thing Jesus did was build a team. Now, Americans, are the, we are the most independent culture in the world. That's not just uh, opinions. That's actually on the basis of many, many uh, research exercises that have been done measuring independence in other cultures. We're the most independent culture in the world. But you know what? The Bible doesn't care. It says you need people. It's true that people can make you sick, <laughs> but, but people can also make you well. 
And we have too much of trying to be well without other people. John Wesley created the greatest movement in the church since the book of Acts. In 1800, there was not one Methodist in the United States. By 1850, 25% of all the people who went to church in the entire nation were Methodists. In, 15 year, in 50 years, that happened. And how did John Wesley create such a powerful movement? He created it with groups. He had classes, bands, penitent bands, select bands. If, if you were a human being, he had a group you fit into. But he knew that holiness was always developed and sustained within a group context. Now, I don't like groups. I used to go to meetings and they'd say, now uh, we're going to break here and find three or four people and talk about how, what you're learning in this session. And I always thought, this is a good time to go to the bathroom. <laughs> now at 68, I think any time's a good time to go to the bathroom. <laughs> But God doesn't care if I like groups or not. He knows I can't be healthy apart from relationship and apart from group. And so the church builds community. The highest value in the kingdom of God, Jesus tells us, is love. If love is the highest value, then people are the most valuable commodity. In fact, the highest value in the church is not truth. The Bible tells us we are to look at truth through the lens of love, not the other way around. Because you and I, if we're fallen people, and we are, if we start looking at truth, but not through the lens of love, that truth becomes hard, brittle, and often harmful. But if we look at truth through the lens of love, it gives us God's perspective for God so loved the world. Build community. And the last one, and the one that's germane to this series, number four, develop people. Everywhere Jesus went, he was developing people. If you were going to be a Christian, you were going to improve. John Wesley said, it is impossible to retain something you have received without improving upon it. Developing people. He took the disciples, 12 disciples, the rest of the world called them ignorant and unlearned men, ill-equipped for the task that Jesus was going to call, but Jesus knew he would develop them. To become a Christian is to become entranced with improvement, to get better at better at specific things, developing people. So to me, that's why the church exists. Now, if I'm, if I'm to be developing, what am I to be developing about? What, is, what am I to be improving upon? And there's really only three things you and I have to work on. Relationships, purpose, and character. Relationships, purpose, and character. If love is the highest value, then people are the most valuable commodity. Then relationships, working on relationships is the supreme quality of the kingdom of God. When Jesus was asked, what's the kingdom about? Can you simplify it? He said, you bet. I don't think he used the word bet, but nevertheless. He said, love the Lord with all of your heart, 
and love others as yourself. Upon this hangs all of the law and the, and the prophets. It says everything you read hangs on this reality. If you read Peter's list of virtues, add to your faith virtue and the virtue knowledge and knowledge self-control, that's actually meant to be a stair step of least to most and the top three are all about relationship. Goodness, brotherly kindness, and love. So I'm to work on relationships. Who should my life bless? Second, I'm to work on my life calling. What's the purpose of my life? Jesus, the the Bible shows us people that were constantly being impacted by God. Abraham was told, hey, uh, it's time to come up. Rise up from the place you're living. I'm going to take you to a place you've never seen and you're going to become the father of a great nation. He went to Moses who is now living in the backside of the desert and he says, it's time to go back to Egypt. You're going to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. He goes to Joseph and he says, Joseph, eventually your people are going to be starving due to famine and drought. I'm going to put you in a place where you can stockpile food and save your own people. He calls Peter, who was then called Simon, a rock. You're going to be the first great leader of the church. He calls out Paul, and Paul becomes the great missionary to the Gentiles. Paul's desire was that he would preach the gospel where nobody else had ever preached the gospel. Mordecai goes to Esther and says, you need to appeal to the king so the king doesn't destroy our people. And remember, you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Life purpose. What is my life about? I'm making a major decision in my life right now and it's based on life purpose. I don't want to die without not doing a particular thing. And so I'm shifting a number of activities in my life. That I I can't be faithful to the calling of God on my life in this season of my life without doing this thing. And so, if I'm going to do this, I have to stop doing this, this, and this. That response to the calling and reordering your life according to your calling never stops Some years ago, one of the great teachers around America was Howard Hendricks, who was a Christian education professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He talks one day about getting a phone call from a a dear friend, and the friend says, you know, I just uh, just wanted to call you, Howie, and tell you that my mom died today. Really? Yeah, yeah. We went over to her house, and uh, we're going through some of her things, and on her desk... My mom, who was 84, he said, had just filled out her life goals for the next 10 years. That is a life well lived. There is no place for not living out of a calling because you and I wither up and die without a calling. And so I work on relationships and I work on, work on life purpose and I work on character. Relationships, why? Because the Bible says of God, God is love. 
Life purpose, why? Because God is creative, and so he invites me into that creative aspect. Character, why? Because God is holy, and so he wants me to enter into a holy life. So that's why we have the church. We ought to be doing those four things, indiscriminately throwing grace around, constantly proclaiming and celebrating the gospel, getting ourselves into community and doing meaningful things together, developing people. How do people develop? They develop in their relationships and their life calling and in their character. And that brings us to what we're going to be doing over the next weeks, talking about character, living a life others can build upon. There are few sorrows a person will feel greater than finishing life with a total lack of one of these character traits. A person who lives in, a, in constant turmoil, never able to find peace, always living out of anxiety and fear. A person who simply is not kind, finds it easy just to steamroll other people. A person who lives without self-control and one day has a good day and the next day makes shipwreck of whatever good they did the day before. These character traits are for you and they are for you others who want to live in the shadow of your life and be blessed by it. So let's look at a couple things, two or three things about these character traits. Number one, the source is God. The Bible says everything good comes from God. And so these are God's traits. And he says, if I'm in your life, I want them to be your traits. I want you to be developing in these areas. But a person can develop in these areas even if they are not a believer. Because just like there are physical laws of nature, there are moral laws. And if I align myself with those moral laws, I get the benefit of those laws regardless. And these traits of love and joy and peace and patience and so forth, these are part of the moral laws of God. This is how the universe is designed. And if I won't invest in these things in my life, then I'm constantly swimming upstream. And it gets tiring, swimming upstream. If I want to go with the flow of the moral universe, then I'll work on these areas of my life. Because everything good comes from him. Number two, it's important that the motivation for these things be positive, not negative. Other people can think that I'm gentle, but that gentleness may come out of a fear of people. So I don't want to upset people because I think they have more power than I have. And so I develop gentleness, but it's motivated by fear. That means others might get the benefit, but I will never get the benefit. I will never feel the peace that comes from operating out of gentleness because it's driven by a by a motivation that doesn't give me life, even though it may give other people life. Another thing for us to think about, 
This list is not for you and I to evaluate somebody else. You might be sitting here thinking, I hope the person sitting next to me sees this word patience. That's not helpful. These are for me. These are not for me to evaluate you. We'll give you a few reasons why. So, a while back I was talking to a staff member of a church that's not even in this state. So, And he was concerned because his pastor was having some struggles in his family. And he thought the pastor should resign. And I said, why do you think that? And he says, well, look at Timothy, Paul says that he, pastor's supposed to be, have his own house in order. I said, all right. Let's work on that a little bit, shall we? In the book of Timothy, 1st and 2nd Timothy, there's about 14 things that a pastor should, uh, that should mark a pastor or a church leader's life. I said, uh, so let's talk about application. Those things are all there, so I'm not going to dispute any of them being there. Let's talk about application. Is a person okay if they got 13 out of the 14? In most areas of life, that would be a pretty good batting average. Well, I know, you're supposed to be. Well, okay. So you're really telling me that when Billy Graham, who preached the gospel to more people in person than any human being that's ever lived, when his two sons were using drugs, he should have been removed from ministry. Let's be consistent. Is that what you're saying to me? Or in fact, when Dwight L. Moody... Uh, one of the fruit of the spirit is self-control. And Dwight L. Moody at five foot six weighed 300 pounds and mostly died because of obesity that he really shouldn't have been preaching the gospel. Or peace that Charles Spurgeon, who was the greatest preacher London had ever seen up to that time with 10,000 people coming on a Sunday to hear him preach. When he got into a series of theological disputes, he wasn't peaceful and so really he shouldn't be preaching. So it's 13 out of 14 all right, or maybe 12 out of 14. If it's all 14, is it all 14 lived out perfectly, or could I be 90% on target? How about 80% on target? Or, or 70? See, as soon as I move to application... I become arbitrary because there is no guide for application here. And as soon as I use this list to judge you, I'm creating criteria that isn't in the scriptures. And now we're all on slippery ground because the Bible says, I see through a glass darkly. Scripture says, I myself am fallen. So it becomes very precarious for me. Ergo, all the way back to our first point where Jesus was indiscriminately displaying grace and favor, I ought to be displaying favor because if I'm not displaying favor, I'm actually putting myself arbitrarily in the position of judge and I'm not really equipped to be the judge. And so this list... 
as I read my scripture to, is a list for me, not a list for me to evaluate you. And sometimes we come to the scripture and we end up with a very idealistic model of what's supposed to happen before heaven. The Bible says the whole creation groans. It doesn't say the whole creation groans until you and I get, get the list lived out perfectly. It's saying this side of heaven, the whole creation groans. And so you, if you don't have some days when you're groaning, you're just not paying attention. <laughs> now this isn't my list for you. This is my list for me. And what is this list good for? Well, if love is the highest value in the kingdom of God, then this list gives me a picture before anything else of how I can live out love in its multiple dimensions in the healthiest way. So right now, all my grandkids are home, ages one to five. There's good reasons for me not to be home. <laughs> they are a tumultuous group. Be quiet, and then all of a sudden, all five are yelling at the same time. And uh, so I'm, I'm watching this go on. Last night, and thinking, I want them always to want to come here. Wherever else they want to go, I want them to be able to say, let's go over to grandpa and grandma's. And if I'm careless about this list in my life, my life isn't a place of love or joy. If as I get older, I become more and more a curmudgeon, the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket. You know, whatever I concentrate on, I conform to. So if I want to concentrate on all the things that are wrong with the world, I sure have plenty to work with. I just don't think at 68, that's a healthy concentration for me. It could be very easy for me then to slip into just being a curmudgeon. Why would my kids or grandkids want to spend a lot of time around that kind of person? Or am I a place of peace or am I always in an uproar? Does being around me, be, does being around me become like walking through a minefield? You never know when I'm going to be mad. You never know when I'm going to be angry. I had a relative once who, he, he was generally, <laughs> he was generally of good humor. But we all got our things, right? He couldn't stand it if somebody opened a can of pop and then drink, didn't, didn't drink most of it. And, you know, leave a can of pop two-thirds full laying around the house. And before long, he was looking for the culprit. You know, I, I don't know. I don't want to be that kind of investigator. Kindness and goodness, gentleness and self-control. 
These are winsome features. You and I want to be winsome people, and we particularly want to be winsome to the people we care about. And so the Lord invites us to move towards him because he says, these, these are the things I'm about, he said. This is my fruit. This is my spirit. And the more you concentrate on me, and the more you walk towards me, the more these will be part of your life. And so the church is about developing people. And the Bible tells us we develop in the areas of character, life purpose, and relationship. And as we start developing in our character, we focus on these eight. We don't focus on them as a list where we use to evaluate others. We don't even focus on them as a point of perfect performance because we're not going to get there. But we want to be able to say to God and to those we love, this is the direction I'm heading. I want to have more patience in my life today than I had yesterday. I want to have more goodness in my life this year than I had four years ago. I want somebody to bump into me and say, you know, they, 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 always, they always wondered if they were irritated by something, but that seems to have disappeared. I wonder what happened to that. And you know what happened to it. You've been pursuing the nature and the character of the Lord you serve. And you've become sweeter in the spirit you carry towards yourself and towards God and towards others. Well, I think that's what the Lord has for us today. So we'll just be half as long in August. So, all right, let's bow our heads and close our eyes together. We just want to take a moment and allow you to talk to the Lord about what the Lord has said this morning. It might be something I said, but it may not be something I said at all. It might be something out of the scripture, but it may not be that. It may be something the Lord has just come to you personally and said to you today. That's his word of life for you. Would you invite the Lord right now to give that clarity in your heart and to say yes to him? Say, Lord, as I leave this place, I don't want to forget this thing that you said to me. Let me pray for us together. Lord, we are grateful that you're about developing people and you expect us to be interesting, pursuing people all of our life. People who display the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. For what you said to us corporately and individually this morning, we thank you. For those who know that you've said something that can change their life today, give them courage and responsiveness in their spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. 
For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.